This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Hey, so today we're going to be tackling the unrepentant person. And I have two very repentant people with me today joining me. There's Austin, my bud. Hey. Shay, my boss and bud. Good to be with you, John. And uh, we're in this series called Managing Difficult People. And uh, today is the unrepentant person. And here's where we're going to go. We're going to break this down into two big parts. Part one will define what we mean by unrepentant and what are the signs of an unrepentant heart. And part two we're going to answer two questions, and here they are. The first one is, why, why in the Dickens is it so difficult to engage with an unrepentant person? And the second one that we're going to tackle is, why is it so difficult to repent generally? It's just difficult to do. But before we jump into all of that, we're going to explain to you guys why we're even talking about this. And I'm going to pick on you, Austin. What would you say? Like, why are we doing this? Yeah, I'd say it's because when you think about who those difficult people are in your life, I, I, I'll speak for myself, but maybe you, it's, it's hard to think of somebody more difficult to manage than somebody who's unrepentant. Like, they just seem like a brick wall and they make no changes. And so we're doing this because my guess is this is a pretty relevant topic for you guys who are listening. There's somebody in your life who fits that bill of an unrepentant person. I, I don't know. Shay, would you add anything to that? Why are we talking about this? Yeah, I think about our own lives um, when, we, when we don't repent. I always tell people, if you don't know what to do, repent. <laughs> if you can't figure it, that's probably a good place Cover to Cover your bases. But, um, but, you know, my mind keeps coming back to that quote from J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor, who said this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Hmm. And I think that's so true, isn't it? Uh, think about the damage that sin does in our own lives and in the lives of others, I- including our loved ones. Um, we, we might think that sin and not repenting and turning back to God and obeying him is no big deal, but it really is. Uh, and in fact, God warns us over and over about the destructiveness of sin. Um, you know, one of the things that we like to say around here is that sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and does more damage than you could ever imagine. And so, guys, we need to thank God for the gift of repentance. Sure. And I'm, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head. Shay, I'm so glad you mentioned sin, which is a weird thing to say. My guess is, and even in my experience, is talking about sin in culture today seems weird. Like it's yeah. just naive. It seems old-fashioned. But if we're really following Jesus— we're listening to what he's saying. Sin is actually a relevant and real topic. So I bring that up to say, if you're hearing us talking and starting with sin and you're like, why this? We're a little bit self-aware 
and yet realizing this is what the Bible talks about mm-hmm. is a root of a lot of the problems. So we think it's important to acknowledge this piece. Yeah, it's a healing category that our culture ignores, and we all feel it when we come up against something that just goes south, crazy, haywire, and we don't know how to explain, like, gee, what happened? I don't know how that got all messed up. It's like a virus. I Ever since COVID, I've used that analogy for sin. It's like a virus inside of us, and it's creative. It morphs. It changes. Oh, it's just a big category for understanding the complexities of all the difficulties that we face. Yeah. Um, so I yeah. think that's a, that's a good word to jump in because yeah. a lot of people hear that word and it grates against them. Mm-hmm. And they hear just, I'm morally bad. I did the wrong thing. I'm a bad person. But no, it's really a descriptive word for all the things that are wrong in our world. Yeah. John, tell us about unrepentance and what does it actually mean? Before we do that, in order to really understand it, it has to be put against the backdrop of what repentance is, because that is misunderstood. Um, Repentance is something that leads to a change of behavior, a change of direction, doing something differently. Okay, that's the external manifestation of repentance. But that is not the core or the heart of what repentance is. It starts someplace else first. I like the psychologist Henry Cloud in the way that he describes it. He makes it so simple when he says repentance is an aha moment when someone really gets it. And I see this in the famous Bible story of the prodigal son. He ruins his relationship with his father, demands all of his inheritance money, uh, and the equivalent of that is just saying, Dad, I wish you were dead right now because I want your money. And then he goes off to spend it on whatever he wants. His life goes into complete and entire decompensation. And then Luke uses this phrase to describe his change. He literally says in Luke 15, he came to his senses. And the Greek meaning of this term from the New Testament is literally, he saw into himself. I love that phrase. He got it. Like he got the relational, emotional, psychological, social, and spiritual implications of what he had become. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, and after that point, he started on his way back to his father to repair the damage. Um, so true repentance starts in the heart. It's a different way of seeing that eventually leads to a life change. And it's important to make this distinction. The uh, outward manifestation and behaviors that come from repentance distinguishing that from true repentance, because you can change behaviors. You can look okay on the outside and not have repentance. Uh, And if that's the case, there won't be any lasting change. It's like the old joke about the kid. His mom tells him to sit in the corner because he's gotten into trouble, but he looks at her and says, hey, you might see me sitting in this chair, but in my heart, I'm standing up. (laughs) That's really good, John. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's the difference. So repentance is real heart change that brings a totally different way of seeing, knowing, and desiring. An unrepentant heart, then, is a heart that is the opposite of that. So it means I'm not open to looking at my actions. I'm not open to looking how I have an impact on others or myself or God or the world around me. It's a really foolish heart that's very small and closed off. And the resultant behaviors from that don't create goodness, they don't create beauty, or any kind of healthy relationship. That's so good, John. I mean, the prodigal son is is such a good example of repentance. 
And, uh, you know, I, I thought I would just maybe jump in here and say um, something right off the bat to kind of level the playing field for all of us. Um, at, at one point or another, and, and to one degree or another, if you think about it, we're all unrepentant, right? I mean, that that's just basic Bible 101, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in this boat. We're all in this category. We all um, love other things uh, more than we love God. And, and, and I love this verse, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or unrepentant, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And so if you're a Christian, it's only by God's grace that our eyes are open to the destructiveness of sin and, and, and our seeing our need of a Savior. And it's only by God's grace, right, that we repent and, and, and by faith trust Him as our Savior and as our King. But I, I just want to mention this. Even as believers, and even though we're now dead to sin and have the power to obey, which the Bible tells us, guys, we still sin. And, and we will until we get to heaven. Now, some you know, people, some churches maybe teach that we can reach a state of perfection this side of heaven. Uh, we <laughs> I don't think the Bible teaches. Those people don't have kids. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's exactly right. Well, and that's just bullhawk. Well, they don't know their hearts very well, right. do they? Right. But, but for example, Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as, as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I, I love that phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. Um, in fact, John, right, says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So thank God he gives us the gift of confession and repentance after we blow it, and that continues on throughout life. Um, I like to say, be careful about going a long time between confessing your sin to God. Well, those people who say you can reach some kind of state of perfection then, according to that verse, they're pretty little liars. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. They're lying right there, too. Yep. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. yeah. And Shay, the other thing real quick about confessing sin to God, it's so good. I I've talked with a lot of um, clients who they somehow equate, if I confess sin to God, that means I'm such a bad person. Hmm. And so I want to ignore the negative. I don't want to focus on that. And I just want to be positive. And what I would want to say to those people is we can separate who people are from what we do. And when we confess before God, God sees us as his child, his son or his daughter, end of story, period. And yet he can still be frustrated and not be okay with the things we do. So the heart of when we confess, and again, Shay, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. We're confessing the things that we've done before God, the heart motivations, all those things that we know are wrong. And when we do that, we can be assured that we're going to be accepted. Yep. So I can say that because confession is actually healthy. Yeah. Yeah. You know how I, I understand it is confession from the Greek word means to agree. And it's essentially saying, I agree, God, that I need you. And the difference is like some people look at things that they do that are wrong and they're like, I hope dad doesn't find out. Confession is 
I've done something, gotten into a mess. I need to go to dad. Yeah. That, that's how I understand yeah. it. Yeah. And so, and so I mentioned all of this, this idea of sin, the, the sin problem that we have and, and even continue to have as Christians, right? Uh, I mentioned this because I just want to level the playing field because the more we recognize how sinful our own hearts are, it, it kills pride. Mm. Uh, see, guys, Christians who know they're saved by God's grace and know the sin in their own hearts and how much they've been forgiven should be the last people to look down on others in their own sin. Mm. Um, I always say, you know, Christians should be the most humble people on this earth. But but it also gives us a little bit of a perspective. You know, sin is deceitful. Um, Paul uh, warns us about the deceitfulness of sin. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, he, he, says, uh, he says, look to God's people in the past as examples and, and learn from them, right? And he, he gives this whole list of, of, of God's people in the Old Testament and how they worshiped idols and they suffered God's judgment as a result. And so he says, be warned about the destructiveness of sin. So yes, the unrepentant people in our lives are very difficult. But we need to remember that we're not squeaky clean either. We all have an oar in the water, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So with all that being said, Austin, I'm going to toss the ball over to you. Tell, uh, tell us what some signs of an unrepentant person might be. Yeah, there's, it's not like there's a, this is the only signs. There's a lot here, but, but how it helps me and hopefully it helps you. I think of four signs of an unrepentant person. So I'll share the signs, then I'll tell a real life story that illustrates what it looks like on the ground. So sign number one, unrepentant people deny. They won't admit or acknowledge any harm done to you or others. They're going to deny their sin. So you won't ever hear this person say, gosh, what have I done? You won't ever hear or see them or feel them grieve and lament over any offense. And if they do grieve or cry or are sad, it's, it's because they got caught. It's for selfish reasons. Oops. Yeah. Second sign is the unrepentant person will deflect. They're going to assign blame to somebody else or to a set of external circumstances. You might hear this person say something like, you know, I was harsh with my tone because you weren't listening to me. You know, they're, they're never the problem. It's always someone or something else. I'm really good at that. The I think blaming shit. others is my spiritual gift. Spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so good at finding fault. It's so easy to do. Myself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a third sign, the unrepentant person will discourage. They're going to discourage you or other people from bringing something up again. You're not going to feel okay or uh, allowed to share something. And then lastly, the unrepentant person is going to destroy. Destroy what? Well, lots of things, marriages, friendships, businesses, ministries. Sometimes it's intentional destruction. Other times it might be unintentional because this person is so hardened and oblivious. They don't want to know or care to know the damage they're doing. And, you know, this destruction can range from minor to severe, it can be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, it can be against a lot of people or maybe just one. But all that to say there's destruction here. And so the, the story, let me share this if you guys don't mind. One of my professors shared this in class and we used it as sort of a case study. And it's a real life situation that shows what these four signs look like in real life. And uh, spoiler alert, I'll be honest here. I got these four signs from this actual story. So the professor was counseling this family who had a ton of conflict. And I hope this professor got paid a lot of money because this is so messy. There's this conflict between four adult siblings after their mom died. 
and the client was one of those siblings. So the conflict is over what to do with the house. And if you guys have seen the movie Knives Out, you know, kind of the whole movie is based around this conflict of what to do with the dad's estate after he dies. This is real life situation. And there were factions had formed. And there was one faction that wanted to sell the property. There was another faction that wanted to keep the property. And there was one sibling who wasn't quite sure and was neutral. And Susie was the neutral one. And Katie was trying to persuade her to join her side as well. Well, Susie wouldn't buy in the pitch. And this made Katie really angry. And she began attacking Susie's character and spreading false rumors and lies to the other siblings about Susie's personal life. Well, Susie got wind of this and confronted Katie, the offending sibling. And you can guess how Katie responded to this. At first, she denied that she even said those things. And then when Susie showed Katie the actual text that she sent to another sibling, because the siblings were like, hey, this is what is being said about you. Uh, Katie doubled down and she deflected by saying, okay, yes, fine, I sent it. But I was under so much stress at work because I just missed a deadline. See, there was no ownership or sorrow for the damage that she did to her sister. Hmm. And so over the next couple of weeks, Susie tried circling back. But every time she did, Katie discouraged her from bringing it up because it was getting in the way of everyone making a decision. That was her excuse. Will you just move on from this? It's hindering what we're trying to do. Now, in the end, uh, I wish I could say there was a happy ending, but there, honestly, there wasn't. Um, I'm not sure exactly what happened to the family estate, but I, I know that Katie ended up destroying her relationship with Susie because of her unwillingness to apologize and repent of the harmful and untrue things that she said about her. Mm. Now, okay. Maybe you don't have uh, such an elaborate or complicated story as that one, and that's fine, but it might be worth stopping and reflecting to think about where uh, you might see those four signs uh, in your own life, but in lives of other people around you of denying, deflecting, discouraging, and destroying. Man, Austin, you're right. I hope that counselor got paid a lot of money because <laughs> that's a messy story. But, you know, Scott Peck um, says this. Um, he says the central defect of wicked people is not their sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. Hmm. Wicked people are characterized by their absolute refusal to tolerate the sense of their own sinfulness. I think that is so profound. Yeah, they get trapped in it. All right, Shay, you need to publish a book with all of your favorite <laughs> quotes. They're really good and memorable. So you work on that. You let me know when we can all buy a copy. Will do, John. We're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to answer the first key question of why it is so difficult to engage with an unrepentant person. So hang out. We'll be right back in a jiffy. But we want to take a quick pause to say thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, think about texting this episode to a friend. And find us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. All right, talking about the unrepentant person, um, and I think we've pretty much established that they can't really see themselves accurately. So what we're going to talk about now is why it's difficult to engage them. Well, they're self-deceived. Uh, they think they're right no matter what. And if they're truly hardened, They'll take any form of vulnerability that you might offer, a soft approach, 
or any kind of openness offering an olive branch, and they'll end up using it against you if they're really hardened. You could put it this way. When you're dealing with an unrepentant person, engaging them at a heart level is not at this point really an option if they're truly mm-hmm. unrepentant. And the Bible speaks to this. I love this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul puts people into categories, and he begins with this, admonish the unruly. The Greek word for admonish means to advise someone concerning the dangerous consequences of some action or something that might happen, you know, if the behavior continues. It's a warning. So he says, admonish the unruly. And then he mentions, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So Paul uses these categories for dealing with different people. And I think it's important to note that he starts with admonishing, admonishing, the unruly, because Christians can get very unfairly and awkwardly trapped into thinking that, well, we just need to be nice and just love them. Well, not always. If we think we have to be soft and cuddly with unrepentant people, it will make it torturous to engage them because, number one, we'll get hurt. And number two, we'll be trying to do something that the Bible tells us not to do. So the way to engage an unrepentant person is to set the conditions that invite them to a change of heart and a direction. And we're going to get into that in episode two. John, let me jump in real quick and make sure I got the point you just made right. You're saying there's not a one-size-fits-all way to deal with people. Right. But instead, we got to adjust our strategy, so to speak, based on where people are at. Exactly. So if somebody, like that First Thessalonians 5 said, if somebody's faint-hearted or weary, we're going to encourage them. We're going to go in maybe with a little more soft approach, see how they're doing, yeah. all those things. But if somebody is unrepentant or unruly, as uh, the verse says, then we have to take a different tactic. And specifically, we have to admonish those people. We've got to speak against what they're doing on a behavioral level. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you might be able to get down deeper to the heart level, but you don't start there because they're unrepentant. Does that seem right? That's exactly right. That's that's very well put. I should have let you make that point. No, you made it. Good job. John, you also mentioned a phrase earlier about how the unrepentant person is self-deceived and can't understand themselves and their motivations. And, and I think it's also difficult to engage this person because we don't know their motivations. We can't. Uh, you, you know, a story comes to mind, you know, years ago, uh, a man wanted to meet with me, not a member of our church, uh, just someone in our community. And I, I think someone in our church had told him that I might be someone good to talk to. And, and it was all too common story. He had cheated on his wife. She had found out. And people in his workplace knew, as well as other people in the community, right? Sin always finds us out. And obviously, he was very broken over it. And so I prayed with him, and, and I reminded him of David's adultery with Bathsheba and how he acknowledged um, how his sin was ultimately against God first and foremost, as it says in Psalm 51. And, and I encourage this guy to, to believe the gospel, that, that in Jesus, right, we can be forgiven no matter what we've done. But I remember telling him, you know, time will tell if your repentance is genuine or if you're just embarrassed that you got caught and have made a mess of things. In fact, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. He says this, uh, uh, which was a really messed up church, by the way. But, but he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, For godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, 
but worldly sorrow brings death. See, guys, I think what Paul is saying here in that verse is the key. There's a worldly sorrow that isn't true repentance. But a godly sorrow recognizes not only have I hurt others and made a mess of things in my life, but my sin is ultimately against God. It's against the love of God in my life. Or or Jesus puts it this way in, in Matthew 7. He says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits. Eventually, what's in a person's heart will show itself in their behavior. But here's my point. On the front end, it's really difficult to know where they are. Yeah, that's a great point. And and it seems to me that we have to remember that because it's going to help keep up our guard just a little bit more with the unrepentant person. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we always, you know, crack down and just totally assume the worst and never give somebody a chance. But it's just more of a state of the heart of keeping our guard up. And we need to do this. We'll get more into how on the next episode. But I just want you guys as listeners to hear that because if we don't keep our guard up, John, just like what you said earlier, we're going to take a lot of damage. Yeah, we had talked about Proverbs 4.23 when we were planning what we were going to say for the episode. I love the passage. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, there's a clear command, you know, from wisdom literature, like, hey, you know, smart up, buddy, because you got to be street smart in this world. If you don't guard your heart against an unrepentant person, then you're going to open yourself to being criticized, manipulated. Uh, You'll be unprotected and basically at the mercy of what this person might say or do. Guys, this is so good. I'm also thinking about the damage that the unrepentant person is doing to themselves. You know, like I say all the time, you can get to a point where you're so hardened that you're unaware of what's happening to you. That's why it's so important that we keep short accounts with God. And what I mean is, is that we confess our sin to God and others and make steps to repent. And if not, we become a little bit like the alcoholic. You know, you uh, start using alcohol, you do the alcohol, but eventually over time, the alcohol begins to to do you or use you. Kind of takes a life of its own. Yes. All right. So we've defined unrepentance. Uh, We've looked at the signs. And now let's get to the final question of the episode. Why don't people repent, ourselves included? Why is it so difficult? A couple of thoughts. In some ways, we're not any better than the unrepentant person. We're all in the same boat on the same hook because we're all self-deceived. That's the bottom line. You know, we talked earlier about sin like being a virus. One of the things it does is it distorts our way of observing. And our hearts are very slow to recognize our own faults, weaknesses, growth areas. Here's a piece of research that's interesting. Uh, University of London, a bunch of researchers concluded that a substantial majority of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person and that this illusion is uniquely strong and prevalent. This is what they write, quote, most people strongly believe they are just, virtuous, and moral, yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. And it, what's really kind of interesting is they asked other questions in the research as well. And among the participants, they said virtually all individuals irrationally 
inflated their own moral qualities and the absolute and relative magnitude of this irrational position was greater than that in the other person. Man, you want to talk about a secular study just confirming yep. what the Bible says about where we are. Yep. Doesn't get much better than that. We think so highly of ourselves, don't we? It come In me, it comes out in the, at least I'm not. Like, maybe I speed a little bit, but at least I'm not a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I water down my own faults. So we're self-deceived. The second thought I'll throw out there is one reason I think we're so hesitant to look into ourselves is because we are horribly afraid of being abandoned, disqualified, cut out. If I admit a wrong, a flaw in myself, then I'm exposing myself to being rejected. And this is the thing we fear the most in life, and it's often what we experience much of the time in our lifetimes. And John, what you're saying, I, I think about my own life. You know, why am I so slow to repent? Well, kind of what you mentioned uh, in that study, I, I, I don't really think sin is maybe all that bad, or I, I think that others are far worse than me, or I hate to admit this, but sometimes I think, you know what, I, I'm justified in doing whatever I'm doing. You know, God owes me and hasn't been good to me. That, that's that's how I become deceived. That's, how, that's what I think. Or um, maybe it's just I, I, it's a lack of trust in God. It's a denial of the love of God in my life. I don't think he's looking out for me and, and my best. And I feel like that I've got to act out and make up for what's lacking in my life. Yeah. yeah. Well, as we kind of wrap this up, I'm not quite sure if we have any practical specific takeaways other than a couple of these. One, keep an eye out maybe just for those signs of the unrepentant person. And those four were, you know, they deny, they deflect, they discourage, and they destroy. So that's kind of the takeaway for out there. But then there's also a takeaway for kind of us and our own selves is, am I the unrepentant person? And I'd say this, if you're genuinely worried about being the unrepentant person, that's actually a good sign mm -hmm. because it shows you're not as hardened by sin as you might be. In other words, you've got a soft heart. You're mindful of wanting to do what pleases God. And I think you guys might agree, at least I hope you'd agree, in all my years of pastoral and counseling ministry, my red flags go up when I see someone who is not worried about if they're an unrepentant person, because that shows that they're unaware or they're apathetic about the impact they might be having on others, on themselves, on their relationship with God. But when somebody is genuinely worried about this and has anxiety, that's a good anxiety. And I'm relieved and encouraged because it's a sign that you are actually worried. And it's a sign of what you really want. You want to be repentant. You want to ask for forgiveness and you want to follow Jesus. And so if that's you, be encouraged because it means you're going in the right direction. Yeah, it's not a, we're not talking about an anxiety of, gee, I've done something wrong and is God not going to like me or love me? We're talking about like an anxiety over, is my heart becoming hard? Mm -hmm. Because that's going to ruin your entire life. And if that's there, that's a good sign that it's not being hardened. Good Christian worry. Right? But, but if you're someone that's always blaming others and you're not looking inwardly at your own heart, that's, that's a red flag. Yeah, that's a that's really good. Well, see, you got some takeaways there. So in the next episode, guys, this has been great discussion. In the next episode, we're going to come up with some strategies for how to deal with an unrepentant person. And I do 
kind of get the impression as we talk about this, we've defined categories, we've sort of let, you know, put the lay of the land in place about what we're talking about. But when you're side by side with an unrepentant person, and let's say it's an office colleague, or let's say it's a marriage partner, someone in your family, someone you can't really get, you know, safe distance from, it really can be hard. So we're going to give you guys some tools in our next episode. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.